Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. It is a privilege to be with you. It's a privilege to be invited to speak to you while your pastor is away on sabbatical. It is a privilege to be invited by Chris to minister to your church family today. I look out and see some familiar faces and those that aren't as familiar, but uh, I hope that we'll get to know each other better throughout this morning. We'll be looking today in Psalm 78, a passage that I have been familiar with for some time, but never really taught on. And so it's a real privilege to open God's Word to Psalm 78. I do bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ at Ogletown Baptist Church across town in Newark, where I serve as an associate pastor, and we've been there since 2012. So if you have a copy of God's Word with you, whether it's digital or whether it's a hard copy, I invite you to go ahead and open up Psalm 78. So when you think about Psalm 78, what comes to mind? So here's some options. If you've not read it or if it's been a long time and you've just now opened and glanced at it, you might think, whoa, this is really long. This is 72 verses. How long are we going to be here today? Or if you've read it, you might think, I've read this, but how do I make sense of all that historical data? I mean, it's just over 60 verses of this historical event and that happening and this occurrence. And what do I make of this? And then if you've heard parts of this psalm quoted, maybe some of the verses that uh, we just heard read for us, you might think, oh yes, this psalm is something to do with training the next generation to follow the Lord. And in fact, there's a ministry that makes excellent Bible curriculum that's named after this psalm. It's called Truth 78, formerly uh, Children's Desiring God. And so you might think, oh yeah, this is the uh, Discipling Our Children psalm. But I will say that as long as the psalm is, and yes, it does deal with the next generation, and no, we're not going to cover every single verse, let me just say at the beginning, can you consider me a bit of a tour guide this morning? So I'm going to point out some things. We're going to walk along a corridor. I'm going to point out some doors and down this one long hallway and then another. And then at the end of the day, uh, you'll have a general idea of the lay of the land, but now you know where to go back and what doors to try and what hallways to explore on your own and with your own families. So we are going to look at this psalm today, especially through the lens of how it applies to training the next generation. But the lessons we learn are not just for the next generation, they're for every generation. And so I trust that whether you are a mom and dad and have children, or you uh, are not even married, and, uh, or are a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, uh, that this is for all of us today. So here's my emphasis right out of the gate this morning. I just want to tell you what it is, is that what the next generation, and really any generation, right, what the next generation needs most are reminders about what God has done. So if you want to walk away and say, I heard the message, what was it? Here it is again. What the next generation needs most what any generation needs most are reminders about what God has done. Let's look at the first three verses. It says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Now, you might say, wait a minute. Asaph, that's the author of this psalm, says that we should listen to teaching. Teaching. That's the word instruction or Torah. 
We should listen to the law of God. And it comes in the form that we're familiar with in the Bible from the book of Proverbs. It comes in parables and dark sayings, analogies, similes. And I would say, yes, well, that's true. But did you notice the rest of the psalm says, I'm going to talk to you about instruction, but then it tells a lot of stories. It reflects on what God has done. Look at verse 4. We will not hide them from our children. We will not hide what? Dark sayings. We'll not hide Proverbs. We'll not hide Torah law. We will not hide them, but tell them to the coming generation. Tell what? The glorious deeds of the Lord. So if there's a kind of a uh, tension in your mind about like law and stories, it's not in Asaph's mind. He says, I'm going to tell you law. I'm going to tell you the instructions of God. Let me tell you stories. Stories of what? Stories of the Lord and his might, the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, and the wonders that he has done. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? So when you think about the Torah, you think about uh, the Pentateuch, you think about the first five books of the Old Testament, you think of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you think, yes, the giving of the law. But I mean, how many stories come out of Genesis? How many stories come out of Exodus and some out of Leviticus and a lot out of Numbers and some out of Deuteronomy? And so we should have in our minds when we give instruction, it includes talking about what God has done in history. And so I will say again, what the next generation and really any generation needs most are reminders about the works that God has done. Let's read verses 5 through 8. He, the Lord, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments." And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So it's instructive to me that when this psalm wants to provide a corrective to the coming generation so they don't turn out like previous generations who wandered from God, so that the coming generations set their hope, their confidence in this God so that this generation obeys God, what, what God has told them to do. When the psalmist wants to get to that destination, what does he write about? 60 verses detailing the works of God. If we want a generation that hopes in God, trusts in God, obeys God, and follows God, we need to tell them what God has done. And the reason that so many of God's people in the Old Testament did not obey or hope in God is because, according to this psalm, they had forgotten what he had done for them. They were not taking it to heart. They were not recalling it as their own, all his works. So let's skip through the psalm quickly here. Look at verse 7. What did it say? So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Look at verse 11. One generation, it says, they forgot his works and the wonders, the miracles, 
the plagues really in Egypt, the miraculous work of God, the wonders that he had shown them. Go to verse 41 and 42. Flip over there. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. So my point this morning is not that teaching has no proper place. Teaching proper behavior has no proper place. But I want to examine a better way of getting to that proper place. If we want a generation who hopes in God, who obeys God, we need to prioritize with them what God has done. If we aim at what they must do, we may get compliance for a time. But if we aim at what God has done, we get much more. So, in training the next generation, what does focusing on what God has done yield? Four things this morning. Number one, focusing on what God has done takes to heart His supernatural power to provide. Focusing on what God has done takes to heart His supernatural power to provide. Look at verses 9 to 12. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. So in verse 9, Asaph, the author of the psalm, identifies as an example some people who had set a bad example. People who did not remember God's works, who did not take them to heart. Who are we talking about? It says the Ephraimites, one of the tribes of Israel. So we don't know which situation in Bible history this is referring to. It may not even be recorded any other place, but apparently at some point, this group, the Ephraimites, this tribe, turned back on the day of battle. So we do know two things about it. Here's the first thing we know. The first thing we know is something about its timing. They were at least one generation after the Exodus, when God rescued his people out of Egypt. How do we know that? Look at verse 11 and 12. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them in the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt. So this is one generation removed at least from when God rescued them from Egypt. So we have some idea of timing. Second, we don't know the exact situation, but second, we know the dynamic described. In the day of battle, these archers armed with bows, bows and arrows, turned and ran. They turned back. And this was not a mere military decision made in the fog of war. This retreat reflected a breach of covenant. They were out of step with the covenant that they had made with God. What was the cause of this failure to trust God and engage in the conflict? Look at verse 11. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. They had forgotten. They were not taking to heart the works and wonders of God. Okay, so that's bad example number one. The Ephraimites, they're facing an enemy and they're ready to go and they turn back in disloyalty to God and his covenant with them. They turn back because they forgot what God had done for their fathers. And then for the next 30 verses, we are now receiving history lesson. 
a history lesson not about the Ephraimites, but about the works of God that they were not calling to mind. So, when the archers went out to battle, they should have recalled how God had provided for them in the past. That's what verses 12 through 20 are all about. Here you are, you're an archer, you're, going, you're with the Ephraimites, you're going out to battle. What would have put steel in your spine that day and confidence in your heart is recalling what happens in these next verses, what God had done in the past, how God had provided, how God had provided. They should have recalled his provision in opening the Red Sea. They should have recalled him leading them through the wilderness by day and by night. They should have recalled him providing water in the desert. They should have recalled him providing bread from heaven and meat to eat. And yet these Israelites did not trust in God's ability to provide. Look at verses 21 and 22. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob, and his anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. So remember, we're not talking about the Ephraimites on the day of battle. This is, we're talking about what they should have remembered. So the Exodus generation came out of Egypt. God provided, 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 and they did not trust his saving power. They didn't trust his saving power, and yet in spite of their disbelief and complaining, God continued to provide for them. Look at verse 23. Yet God commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and he rained down manna to eat and sent meat for them to eat. He brought blessing, and yet God also brought judgment. Because not only did he still provide for them when they complained, he also judged them as well for their rebellion. Look at verse 34 and 35. Well, before we get there, look at verse 27 to 31. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sands of the seas. He let fall around them in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. And they ate and were well filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. God provided food for them even in their rebellion. He also did not let them go unpunished. God provided blessing and judgment. He provided. And yet, even through it all, God provided them with repentance. Notice verse 32 and following. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite the wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. God provided. And it's a roller coaster up and down of provision. He's providing in crazy circumstances. He's providing in crazy ways. He's providing bread from heaven and, and meat to eat from the birds that he sent. 
He is sending and providing judgment when that's necessary, but he's also providing opportunities and working in their hearts to repent. God is providing for them, and they did not deserve it again and again and again and again. And so when the, back to the Ephraimites, when the Ephraimites faced an enemy, the message they needed to call to mind was that God was powerful to provide whatever they needed and powerful to to provide consequences as well. And so similarly today, when we face difficulty or threats to our well-being or potential threats to our well-being, we must take to heart this truth that God will supernaturally provide. That's the history lesson that the Ephraimites forgot and that Asaph reminds us of. Even when we forget, God provides. We must not run. We must not quake. God's works will provide for you. So, We must not only remember that God provides, we must also take to heart that God's power is sufficient to deliver. So let's go to the second bad example. First we had the Ephraimites, and now we're moving on to lesson number two. It's not the Ephraimites in particular, it's the people of God as a whole. And that's what we get to in verses, beginning in verse 40. And in these verses, we learn that focusing on what God has done takes to heart his supernatural power to deliver. Let's look at verses 40 and 42. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. So here we're not looking at the generation or generations after the Exodus, we're looking at the generation of the Exodus, the actual generation rescued from Egypt. Notice we just read, on the day, they did not remember his power on the day when he redeemed them from Egypt. But this section of Psalm 78, verses 40 through 66 doesn't start by focusing our attention on one particular bad example scenario like we did with the Ephraimites. It's pretty general. Did you notice what it said? They rebelled against him. They grieved him. They tested him. They provoked him. It happened all the time in the wilderness. In contrast to the Ephraimites, who there was a day of battle. There was something concrete, a scenario, very particular. This is more general. So we're like, well, what, is there a particular scenario that he's going to get to. Well, the stage is set here with a general problem. And Asaph again tells us why. So from verse 42 to 55, we get it's what they forgot. He says, they did not remember his power. And then we have the history lesson. So here's the history lesson. They are told about the plagues, about how Pharaoh was defeated at the Red Sea, etc., etc. These are the lessons that they eventually forgot. Now, when we get to verse 56, we start to be told about a specific situation. Let me read verses 56 through 58. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God 
and did not keep his testimonies. Okay, that sounds like the beginning. And then he gets specific. But turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. When? For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. The problem here wasn't turning back on the day of battle. The problem was idolatry. They were looking to something other than God to give them what they wanted. And what's interesting to me is that the verse that gives details about their idolatry uses the same key words to describe the Ephraimites' problem on the day of battle. The Ephraimites carried bows but did not use them. The Exodus generation here were like bows that did not work. The Ephraimites turned back. The Hebrew word is hafak. They turned back on the day of battle. The Exodus generation twisted or turned away like a broken bow. It's the same Hebrew word. The problem with the Ephraimites was that they turned away because they did not trust God's power to provide. And the history lesson reminds them, God provided here, 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 and here. The problem with the Exodus generation is that they turned to idols because they did not trust God's power to deliver. Because when you examine the history lesson provided by Asaph that the Exodus generation forgot, verses 42 to 55, the emphasis is not on how God provided. The emphasis is on how God powerfully defeated their enemies. God sent plagues on Egypt and all their false gods of Egypt. God delivered his people, but swallowed up Pharaoh and his armies at the Red Sea. He brought his people into the land, but drove out the pagan nations from before them and gave their land to his own people. In sum, God wielded supernatural power to deliver his people and defeat his enemies. So, similarly, today when we face the temptation to look to something other than God to make life work, when we look to something other than the one true God And when we're enticed to seek what we need from something other than God, we must take to heart this. God has defeated all his rivals. So why go to anyone or anything else? They're not real. They can't deliver. They are powerless in comparison to the one true God. So in the first bad example, we saw that the works of God remind us that God is able to supernaturally provide but just now in the second bad example that he's supernaturally able to deliver. And we must focus on these works of God in our lives. And when we do, we will set our hope in God and we will obey his commands. But thirdly, focusing on what God has done also prepares for wise cultural engagement. Focusing on what God has done gives us what we need to engage our culture wisely. So I've sort of given you a really sprinting tour of the two bad examples, and now we're going to kind of pause and catch our breath. Can we do that? You with me? All right, let's catch our breath. Let's reflect on these two bad examples, the Ephraimites and the Exodus generation. 
Did you notice the similarities and differences? The Ephraimites turned and ran to save their lives. The Exodus generation turned to idolatry to meet their needs. And aren't these the missteps of any generation? On the one hand, we are tempted, like the Ephraimites, to flee to safety from the enemy. We're tempted to withdraw from threats and the dangers of our day, of our culture. On the other hand, we're tempted, like the Exodus generation, to embrace the enemy. We're tempted to assimilate with the opportunities and benefits of our day, of our culture. But both missteps are failing to call to mind the works of God for them. When we capitulate to the culture and become more like those who are not God's people, we're forgetting that God has fought against his enemies and they are actually powerless to provide anything we need. And in contrast, when we isolate from the culture and we pull away from those dangers, we're not remembering that even in the midst of a hostile culture, God is faithful to provide what we need. But I want to go even further. So we were standing and pausing. Let's just sit down for a minute. Does that sound counterintuitive to you? I mean, wouldn't you kind of think, wait a minute, did Asaph like put the wrong works with the wrong bad example? I mean, I mean, I think if I were writing this and I were talking about how somebody was going into battle and they turned back on the day of battle, you know, the, I said, let me tell you the history lesson you need to hear. God is a warrior and he fights, and he defeats the enemy, go into battle. But that's not the example he provides. He uses that for the other bad example. On the other hand, if I were actually uh, in a situation where I might be tempted to look to idols to give me what I want, to provide what I think I need, I say, I know the history lesson that you need to hear. I've got it. Remember when God brought people out of Egypt and he led them through the wilderness? He provided, 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 provided. So don't turn to idols. But that's not what he says. He says when you face the enemy, God has provided. And when you're tempted to idolatry, God has defeated those enemies. Curious. Almost counterintuitive. But Asaph is so wise. God is so wise. Because if we faced hostility against us, armed with the mindset of God will defeat you, what might happen? Well, we might be overly combative. Instead, we face hostility calmly, knowing God will provide. And if we face the promises of idolatry, armed with only, God will meet my needs, then we might be overly accommodating. You know, like, we might choose which God would provide for us best. And surely God is the best one of this lineup. 
But instead, we should face the lure of idolatry confidently knowing that our God has actually routed these other options and is infinitely superior to them all. So recalling then, because that's what we're talking about, right? Remembering the works of God. Recalling this balance in the works of God to provide and to deliver will help us and the next generation engage the culture without wavering and to stand without fear. We must help the next generation focus on the works of God, but we cannot and must not present only some of His works. Just provision, just victory. Instead, we have a full balanced God who works in comprehensive ways, and in His works, He's provided precisely what His people need in any generation, in the past and in the present and in the generations to come. So you might think we've taken a sprinting tour, we've paused, then we sat down and reflected some more, and after all this, I think I need to lie down. This is a tall order. I'm busy enough with shopping and home projects and school projects and who knows whatever else to keep in mind all these works of God. I've got to be a historian as well. This is a lot for busy parents, for busy Sunday school teachers, for busy VBS workers. But this psalm provides great encouragement and comfort because it also says, and this is the last point for today, that it doesn't all depend on you. In other words, focusing on what God has done is not finally, ultimately, decisive in how the next generation turns out. It's not all dependent on how great a parent you are. So these past Old Testament generations of God's people did not remember, did not take to heart God's works for them. And the problem, though, was more than a memory lapse. Oh, I knew I forgot something. Verse 8 says their heart was not steadfast, their heart, that their spirit was not faithful to God. Verse 37 says the same thing. Their heart was not steadfast toward Him. They were not faithful to His covenant. God did these works in their midst, and they still turned away from Him. So it is today. You can teach your children and to some extent perhaps even control their behavior, but you cannot change their heart. But God can. And so while the task of teaching and reminding the next generation falls on you, the outcome does not. Additionally, what is decisive in this psalm is God's mercy. So we have bad example number one and bad example number two, the Ephraimites and the Exodus generation. We have two retellings of God's works for his people. And while God's works are amazing, God's people are not, clearly. They rebel, they lie, they reject. But at the end of the day, at the end of both stories, it ends well. God does not reject them. His mercy has the final say. Look with me, verses 38 and 39. So this is how the bad example number one wraps up. You ready? 
Here's the end of the, are you one of those people that like gets a new book and you slip to the last chapter to see how it ends, right? Okay, here we go. This is for you. Yet he, God, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. This is how bad example number one ends. And did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. Bad example number one ends with the triumph of God's mercy, not the failure of God's people. What about bad example number two? Let's read verses 65 and 66. After about half a dozen verses of God just judging, judging, judging his people for their sin, here's what he says. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout, and he put them to everlasting shame. It seemed like God had abandoned his people, and they were just facing the teeth of judgment. And yet God awakens as if he had been asleep, and he fights God's people's enemies for them. Mercy has the final say. And still today, the final chapter in the lives of the next generation is often yet to be written. And in looking at your own story, which of you could have predicted that you would be where you are? Remember those seasons in your life? And you're here. And you are in the grace of God. He's the same God in your generation as the next generation. And they may be unfaithful, but he cannot deny himself. The pen that writes the stories of your generation and the next generation and all generations is held in the hand of our gracious and merciful and patient God. But then, did you notice, these are how the two stories end, but did you notice how the whole psalm ends? We've not even touched on that yet. All of a sudden, Asaph starts talking about how God chose David as the person to reign and Jerusalem as the place to reign. Well, Ephraim had been in the running, a candidate, as it were, to rule. But Asaph says, no, God chose David. And back in verse 60, we read that the town of Shiloh had been a previous location for God's tabernacle, but instead, God chose Jerusalem. So I want us to notice, earlier we talked about the Ephraimites, but they're not reigning. David is, that's the end of the psalm. Shiloh is mentioned earlier in the chapter, but that's not where God's temple and tabernacle are going to be, his presence. No, it's Jerusalem. The failures of Psalm 78 are not just addressed, they're replaced. They are substituted with the victory of another option altogether. And so today, the failures of the next generation are not final because Jesus, our substitute, is greater than their failures and ours. He is able not just to fix, but to replace and to restore all the results of weakness and rebellion, and that is good news. 
So yes, we need to focus our hearts and the hearts of our children on the works of God. VBS is coming up, and we're talking about the good work of God, and we have confidence that the good work of God that He has begun in drawing young men and women and old men and old women to Himself, all His followers, that work He will not fail to complete. And we have opportunity this week to talk about the works of God and what he's done and how he's faithful even when we're not. And he's faithful to provide and he's faithful to deliver. And he's not just building buildings and structures, but lives and souls and generations to come. And that's not just our calling this week, it's our calling every week. If we want to change the next generation, we don't change their behavior. When we want to change the next generation, we don't just bring them good advice. When we want to change the next generation, we put before them as a constant reminder of what our God has done. And that he is supernaturally able to provide. And that he's supernaturally able to deliver. And those arm us with calmness and with confidence as we walk in wisdom in an increasingly hostile culture. And we walk with the confidence that no matter what we do, how well we do it, we are in the hands of a merciful God who will write at the end of the story, and they all lived happily ever after. We know how the story ends. His mercy has the final word. And so we go in confidence. We don't know the twists along the road. We don't know the challenges we'll face. But we know how it ends. And so we go with confidence. Because we've seen how God has treated other generations in their ups and downs and twists and turns, and we've seen how he's treated them. And so let's remind each other, not just what God has done in your life, tell that story, but tell the story of the Exodus generation. Tell the story of Jesus. Tell the story of the early church. Focus on the works of God. Take them to heart. For the next generation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us so clearly in your word, so wisely in your word, so encouragingly with great mercy. So, Lord, help us to focus on what you have done. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.